Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be beginning my look at Francis Parkman's La Salle and the Discovery of the Great West. This is the third volume of Parkman's life's work, France and England in North America, which traces the rise and fall of the French Empire in the Americas uh, up until 1763 and the Treaty of Paris, which ended French aspirations in mainland North America. Um, so in the previous six episodes, we looked at the first two volumes. The, the first uh, looked at the Huguenots in Florida, looked at uh, uh, Champlain, the founding of Quebec, and that early heroic history, mostly in the, in the 16th century. Um, in the second volume, we, we jump ahead to the Jesuit mission and the Jesuit ambitions to uh, establish a kind of a religious uh, type of empire in among the Huron in Canada, and that uh, that project fails catastrophically with the smallpox epidemic, the martyrdom of the major Jesuit leaders, and the destruction of the Huron by the Iroquois. So we talked about those two in the previous episodes, and um, this volume uh, is another adventure story. It focuses on one man, uh, Cavalier de la Salle, um, the maybe the most important explorer of of the West for for the French Empire, at least. Um, la Salle was inst- instrumental in in laying French claims to Illinois, Ohio, Wisconsin, the Mississippi, and even he went as far as establishing colonies and and sending expeditions down to Texas. Um, so. During his his relatively short life, he did a whole lot that helped um, lay the foundation for for the French position in the farther west, right? And then Volume Four is going to pick up the story in Quebec. So, Volume Three and Four are kind of parallel texts. In fact, Five, all, all Volume Five also looks at Count Frontenac and his and his conflict with 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 England and and some of the early wars. So. Um, so these three volumes kind of go together and tell different parts of the story in the second half of the of the 17th century after the destruction of the of the Jesuit missions. So uh, you can kind of think of it as as the first is more of the story of exploration and adventure and uh, you know all those kinds of stories. And I have a lot of interesting things I want to say about this volume, and then. Next volume looks at Quebec and kind of the institutional, cultural, social foundations of the French in Quebec. And then uh, fifth volume is more of the political history and uh, the geopolitical history, the international history of of French America uh, by looking at the story of Count Frontenac. So they all sort of go together. And then the final two volumes cover the, the showdown between England and France. So uh, it's going to be a while till we get there, though, because we're going to kind of go step by step through these these volumes. Um, for this particular book, I'm kind of going to break it up, obviously, into 100-page chunks. It's a 300-page book. Um, but I'm going to kind of do it a little bit thematically here. Um, the first uh, part, I'm going to talk about LaSalle a little bit, his life, his, his, his mission, his some of his early explorations in Wisconsin and the Great Lakes, culminating in the expedition of the Griffith Griffin, Le Griffin, which was the the first major, the largest up that time sailing ship that traveled the Great Lakes. It vanished without a trace. We still don't know 
what happened to it. Um, but that up until the, the departure of the Griffin is what I'll look at in, in this first episode. Um, and then I want to focus on the theme of this book, which is kind of the what it meant for the future of France in the New World with the decline of the Jesuit missions. At least that's something Parkman is very interested in. Because, you know, Parkman plays with different types of empire that could have been founded, first with the Huguenots in Florida, then looking at the Jesuits. And the Jesuits were tr trying for something really different, maybe more of a of something cl maybe closer to what the Spanish were able to do in, in Mexico. You know, convert the local population, assimilate them into, uh, into essentially Frenchmen, or at least colonial subjects of France, and then kind of establish a land empire that way. Um, again, it's not going to be one based on settlement, like in England. And of course, Parkman thinks that's the big contrast, absolutism and liberty. But what the Jesuits were hoping for was something different than what would actually happen. And what does happen is laid out in this volume a little bit and in the next two volumes. And that's going to be um, the power, the rising power of the traders, the rising power of feudalism in in French Canada and how that was really a shift away. So the Jesuit, Jesuits are still there. The Jesuits are not gone entirely. In fact, Parkman talks about them in this volume a little bit, but they're they're tamed and they're, they kind of give up on their big ambitions and instead embrace a, um, I mean, still having some conflict with these other forces, but they are disempowered. Their, their ambition fails. And instead we see monarchy, feudalism, absolutism taking root and LaSalle's story although largely a story of exploration and adventure in in the west and there's a lot of great stories there um, it's it's something new and it's and it's because um, he's not just an explorer he's not just interested in that he's also interested in building estates and forts and and creating a clear political presence in New France, which is something a little bit more than even what Champlain would end up doing. In the next episode, I'll then pick up the a little bit more on the story of the explorations itself, especially in the Mississippi and the, the, the Griffin and all that, the, the founding of um, Fort Crevelcourt. And that I want to focus on the issue of, of, of interactions with labor, because it's something we haven't talked about much in this series, and it's been a while in this podcast since we've talked very seriously about labor and class conflict, which is something I'm always very interested in. Um, one thing that's really, you don't, you didn't see this before in the book, in any of his previous books, is just how much class conflict uh, threatened uh, this, this empire. And it's certainly in the case with the Saul, there was large scale class conflict between the, the, the sailors and the, the officers. And that's going to become a bigger part of our story, I think, as we go into the tale, especially maybe volume four and, and five. And then in the third episode, which will cover the final 100 pages or so, that's really going to be about this, the, the farthest reach of the French Empire into Texas. And, and I haven't quite got to read that yet, but I'm really interested in, in what that's going to mean. Well, rereading it. I read this years ago, but I'm going to want to get into the, you know, this... French presence in these areas that are, are largely seen as Spanish colonies at the time. And, and then, of course, the death of La Salle and what that means for the, the future of the settlement and colonization and exploration of, of the Great West. Um, so the book is called La Salle and the Discovery of the Great West. This is the version that was published in 1879. 
He had originally published it in 1869 as just The Discovery of the Great West. That was the title, Discovery of the Great West. And he revised it. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe did he make LaSalle more of a prominent place or he just had a new title? But anyways, it was reprinted with revisions in 1879 um, with some additional documents. And Parkman had done that before. He did it with the Pontiac book. He did it um, with some others. So... He was used to republishing stuff with as he got new new sources and new information. And he, he talks about this in his introductions to, to, to the later editions, what he exactly added. Um, so, I mean, that's the publication history of it. So, you know, the version we have today is the 1879 version. That's the one collected in the Library of America volume of Parkman's writings. All right, so let's jump into this. So we get we start with a brief introduction and we're told that that the French, their interest in going into the Great Lakes, into the Mississippi River is the search for China. So they're still this is still the air. They're trying to find that Northwest Passage or some kind of land route or, or water route. I mean, through North America, that will get them to to Asia. Of course, they know about the California coast, so they know there is another side to the Americas, obviously, but. Uh, they didn't quite know how to get there, right? And in fact, I think Parkman makes a mention in the very first volume of this book, of this series, that I think Champlain was actually proposing a Panama Canal, you know, way back in the 16th century, or thinking that that could be a possibility. But the search was still for a water route, and that's not unplausible. You had all these rivers going inland, and they didn't know how, you know, how far west the the continent went. So the search for China was not an unreasonable one, and that's what's pushing a lot of the French exploration at this time, including that of, of Cavalier de la Salle. Um, then we jump into chapter one, and he starts by giving us kind of the history of la Salle, his background, his youth, his decision to join America, his connection to the Jesuit order. He, he was originally trained as going to be trained as a Jesuit, but he left the order. Um, and you know, he comes to America and he's coming at a time in which there's these efforts to kind of establish a type of feudalism in the America. So there's going to be these grants are given, titles are handed out, land is, is divvied up, you know, kind of how other other European settlers did the same thing. The, the British were doing the same thing, you know, you know, giving land as grants to to people, you know, kind of on a feudal scale. Um, they sometimes, you know, like in the in the British colonies, you had the headright system, which encouraged settlement. You didn't have that so much in France, but there was still land. So to make that land valuable, there would have been some desire for settlement. But that's not really the way the French Empire goes. Um, and I think by Parkman making such a deep contrast between Britain and France in this regard, he's a bit disingenuous. Um, but anyways, he comes there and he takes part in this and gets his gets his commissions, gets his grants. But he comes as a very young man with a lot of ambitions, and he almost immediately begins um, explorations. And his first exploration takes him to to the Ohio, uh, to the Ohio River, and he kind of maps that out. Um, uh, the big theme here, though, I, I don't want to get into much of the history of these voyages until maybe this next episode, where I really want to talk about the labor conflict, the class conflict at the heart of some of these expeditions. But uh, really how this is a transitional period away from kind of a Jesuit-led uh, settlement and, and empire to something quite, quite different. Now, part of this is just a decline in, in Jesuit zeal, 
Um, so he asks a question in chapter three of this book, uh, what were the Jesuits doing? Um, since the ruin of their great mission of the Hurons, the perceptual change had taken place in them. They had put forth excursions almost superhuman, set at naught famine, disease, and death, lived in the self-abgination of saints, and died with the devotion of martyrs. And the results had all been a disastrous failure. From no shortcoming on their part, but from the force of events beyond the sphere of their influence. A very demon of havoc had crushed their incipient churches, slaughtered their converts, uprooted the populous communities on which their hopes had rested, and scattered them in bands of wretched fugitives far and wide through the wilderness. Um, so that's just the review of the last three episodes, uh, the story of the Jesuits. Um, going on, uh, they had devoted themselves in the fullness of faith to the building up of Christian Jesuit empire and of the conversion of the great stationary tribes of the lakes. And of none remained but the Iroquois, the destroyer of the rest, among whom indeed was a field which might stimulate their zeal by the abundant promise of suffering and martyrdom but which from its geographical position was too much exposed to Dutch and English influence to promise great and decisive results. Their best hopes were now in the north and west, and thither, in great part, they turned their energies. We find them on Lake Huron, Lake Superior, and Lake Michigan, laboring vigorously as of old, but in a spirit not quite the same. Now as before, two objects inspired their zeal, the greater glory of God and the influence and credit of the order of Jesuits. If the one mode that had somewhat lost its power, the other gained. The epoch of saints and martyrs was passing away, and henceforth we find the Canadian Jesuits less and less an apostle and more and more an explorer, a man of science, and a politician. Um, and I think that's enough to get the point, is that they, they start to adapt to the realities of what the French Empire will be, which will be one based on commerce, one based to some degree on, on the dictates and the needs and the necessities of, of Paris. And a Paris moving increasingly towards absolutism and centralized monarchy in which an order like the Jesuits will necessarily be less significant in, in France and in the Americas. So they start to adapt themselves to that. And that's not the world. That's not the realm in which the, the superhuman, as Parkman puts it, zeal of the Jesuits will, will, will have a place. Uh, the people like Lejeune and Brebeuf um, and Gouge they're simply not going to, to make it in this world. So they, they become explorers. And he doesn't say too much about the Jesuits throughout this book, but he just kind of lays out that, they, that that's, they sort of take on part of the story of exploring, settling, well, not, maybe not settling so much, but establishing a French presence in the, in the Great Lakes. And that's really what Parkman here is talking about. When he means the Great West, it's referring to, the, at that time, the Great Lakes, the Mississippi Valley, the Ohio Valley, all the way to Texas. So later on in American history, of course, the Great West will have a different meaning, like the Trans-Mississippi West. At this time, it's this huge territory, though, in which the French aren't going to have all the institutions of empire available to them, like they would maybe in Quebec. It's not going to have settlement. There's not going to be farming. But it's a huge claim. And, of course, the conflict over that claim is going to have such a big impact on the British, the French, the Native Americans, the settlers of all these different empires are going to be drawn into that. So uh, and kind of an important chapter here called The Jesuits on the Lake. But it's just really talking about the shift in New France towards trading and towards uh, commerce. And that becomes a little bit more stable uh, than the missionary activities because those obviously were, were destroyed. Um, so we got another chapter uh, called France Takes Possession of the West, which also sort of deals with the Jesuits. A little bit Father Alleyway, who 
alleyway who gives a kind of a nice uh, speech trying to establish a, a relationship with Indians who live there. And then we get a really huge chapter, chapter five, called The Discovery of the Mississippi. And this uh, basically is the entire story of Marquette. Um, LaSalle and Marquette cooperated. They were comrades in the, in the discovery of the Mississippi um, Valley. So we get all the stuff about Wisconsin here, Green Bay, the Wisconsin River, and those explorations. And, and basically the whole career of Marquette in this period. Because Marquette will get sick and die uh, during this, this expedition. Now, Marquette's kind of important because he does sort of make the case uh, for Parkman of the Jesuits kind of converting to explorers because Marquette, of course, was a Jesuit um, and um, his name is still well known among American Catholics, especially in the area where I'm from, in the Great Lakes. Um, but, you know, people think of him as an explorer. They don't necessarily think too much of him as a career as a Jesuit. Uh, there's another guy involved here, too, that you may know, uh, Louis Juliet, who was also attached to these, these expeditions. So, yeah, this book's about LaSalle primarily, but there are other important characters here. And, and this is a, a nice chapter that, that gives you a nice introduction into, into what Marquette was, was up to here. But again, it, it's a story of exploration. It's, you don't, he establishes some forts, he establishes some settlements, um, maybe not settlements, I keep using that word probably improperly. He establishes some French presence, and even a Jesuit presence there, but it's, it's sidelined by, by the larger story of discovery. Um, chapter five is called La Salle and Frontenac. Frontenac uh, at this time becomes the, I don't got the exact date written down here, 1763 or 1773 or so, becomes the, the governor of, of New France. And, and he's going to have a fairly close relationship with Saul, so much so that La Salle will, will label, name one of the forts that he establishes in the Great Lakes, Fort, Fort Frontenac. Um, but I think more key to, to Parkman's point here is that it's, it's kind of, again, feudalism. Uh, La Salle becomes a rich feudal lord in New France, um, largely due to the commissions he gets from Frontenac and the support he gets from Frontenac. And he never had to really do his other explorations. He would have been uh, a famous, wealthy, well-off person in, in early New France without doing these other things. So kind of like Champlain, uh, La Salle, you get the feeling it's sort of, hard an explorer and not one who can really be cooped up too much in these forts. But nevertheless, more so than Champlain, he becomes a very, very wealthy, essentially a feudal lord in New France. Um, Parkman writes, he was well received at court and he made two petitions to the king, one for a patent of nobility in consideration of his services as an explorer and the other for a grant in seigniory of Fort Frontenac, for so he called the new post in honor of his patron. On his part, he offered to pay back the 10,000 francs which the fort had cost the king to maintain it at his own charge with a garrison equal to that of Montreal, besides 15 or 20 laborers to form a French colony around it, to build a church whenever the inhabitants should reach 100, and meanwhile to support one or more Recollet friars, and finally to form a settlement of domesticated Indians in the neighborhood. His offers were accepted. He was raised to the rank of an untitled noble, received a grant of the fort, and lands adjacent to the extent of four leagues in front and half a length in depth besides the neighboring islands. He was invested with the governor at the fort and settlement, subject to the orders of the governor general. LaSalle returned to Canada, proprietor of a signory, which, all things considered, was one of the most valuable in the colony. 
His friends or family rejoicing in his good fortune and not unwilling to share it made him large advances of money, enabling him to pay the stipulated sum to the king to rebuild the fort in stone, maintain the soldiers and laborers, and procure in part at least the necessary outfit. Had LaSalle been a mere merchant, he was in a fair way to make a fortune, for he was in a position to control the better part of the Canadian fur trade. But he was not a mere merchant, and no commercial profit could content his ambition. Um, so this is, I think getting at his thesis here uh, of the conversion of the empire from one of, of heroic desperate acts by these Jesuits and explorers to one of, of established, regular, stable commerce. Um, and he throws in in this chapter also a little bit more on the de decline of the Jesuits in the region. Um, chapter seven, seven uh, it's called Party Strife, 1768. This is all, this is like a, a whole chapter that Parkman basically just summarizes, analyzes uh, a memoir of LaSalle's that, that appeared. Um, actually not written by uh, LaSalle himself, by Supultin Galinet is the, when I put this together, but it's, it's basically LaSalle's words and, and, and ideas. And party strife, well, who's the, who's the strife between? Well, you know, it's kind of, it becomes much more politicized about who is, in charge, he's a major political player. He controls this trade. He has all this land. He has close relations with Frontenac. So this is going to inspire jealousies and conflicts among the other forces, particularly the Jesuits in New France. So it's an awareness here that, you know, there is competition. But even though one faction, one kind of side of one party almost is emerging as the as the strongest. Um, and then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we return to the story of exploration. Uh, we, we pick up with LaSalle at Fort Frontenac, his, his base of operations, and he's beginning to um, you know, establish plans for a new expedition to the West. That's, he's still trying to find this kind of port to China, this path to China. Um, he, you know, Builds up his base. He gets a commission for the for his exploration. Um, he, got, he actually gets like a patent, it's called, uh, authorizing LaSalle to build his own um, forts as he sees fit. So he's got a kind of a free reign to build as many forts as he can within five years. He'll get a, a monopoly in buffalo hide. Of course, very, very profitable for him. Um, no colonies are mentioned here, but he's got this kind of broad mandate to discover the Great West, including a way to Mexico uh, as well. So there's kind of broad colonial and imperial interests at work in this LaSalle commission. Um, and, and then chapter, chapter nine is called LaSalle at Niagara, which is mostly about him building up his support. And then finally, we get the launching in chapter 10, we get the launching of the Griffin. The Griffin is this... Uh, the largest sailing ship up to that point to sail in the Great Lakes. Maybe the first. Yeah, I checked it out on Wikipedia. It's the, we don't know because it's lost. So we only have written sources that kind of attest to this. A 45-ton bark, perhaps, the largest sailing vessel in the Great Lakes up to that time, um, set out on its maiden voyage October 7th, 1679, with a crew of 32, sailed across Lake Erie, Lake Huron, and Lake Michigan through uncharted waters that only canoes had previously explored. The ship landed on an island in Lake Michigan where its local tribes gather with animal pelts to trade with the French. Um, and then it vanishes not long after. But the story of the Griffin, I'll talk about a little bit more in the 
in the next episode. But I really want to focus on this crew and these sailors and the kind of the motley crew of people who get attached to these explorations. Because one of my one of my pet peeves, I guess, is when people talk about like the Magellan expedition. Yeah, like Magellan didn't even make it across the world, so he didn't circumnavigate the world. Some people from that crew did, but it was mostly survivors, almost all of whom were working class or poor, uh, just survivors. Some were Filipino, you know, from or Pacific Islanders that made it around there. So we do this with a lot of expeditions. We talk about Cook's voyages or Columbus's voyages. And yeah, we have the names of these people, but they're not usually centered to our history. We talk about the leader of that and not to say they're not important, but just that there is a labor history behind exploration, even scientific exploration, right? You know, if you think about something like the Central Asiatic expeditions, the missions to um, find human origins in Central Asia in the early 20th century, that involved the work of hundreds of Chinese workers, many of whom were, had some training in science, actually. Um, but they were recruited, Chinese scientists who were recruited to help with these um, scientific expeditions in Central Asia. And they find all these dinosaur bones and things, and it's very important for the history of science in that, in that time. But there's a labor history to it as well. And, and more and more people are beginning to write a little bit of that labor history of exploration. And I, I support that, that endeavor. Um, so I'm going to, to tease out a little bit of what Parkman has to say about these types of workers in my second episode looking at LaSalle and the discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman. But it'll have to wait till the next, next time. Uh, so yeah, that's it for now. Maybe a little bit short, but I think the main thing to get in, to know about this, uh, this part of the book is this very, very clear shift in the nature of of the French Empire in the, in the New World with the decline of the Jesuit missions um, and the rise of people like LaSalle, feudal, emperor, feudal lords in, in the Americas, making their money off trade. So anyways, if you have your own thoughts about this, if you read these books or have your own comments about it, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I will love to hear from you. Um, but that's going to be it for now. So I will... Talk to you next time with part two of my thoughts on LaSalle and the discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman.